Welcome to presentation six of Don't Waste a Good Recession, Friday the 24th of April 2020. And I don't know about you, after March felt like the longest year of my life, it's actually surprised me how quickly April has moved. And maybe that's a reflection of my business shifting from respond to planning for the future. I'd love to hear how you've experienced time over the last few weeks. Is it still dragging? Is the lockdown, the homeschooling, some of these challenges still holding you back? Or are you finding some momentum, some headspace, some freedom again? Please let me know in the Facebook group uh, or in the comments. A very, very quick thank you as well to everybody who has been leaving comments, sending me direct messages, joining the Facebook group, subscribing on Spotify, on YouTube. Uh, I'm particularly grateful for everyone who's been leaving formal reviews and who has been sharing some of these links around with their networks. I'm here to spread some positivity and practical advice. You can help me spread that positivity, then at the end of the day, we all benefit. Now today, we've got a little bit of positivity and a whole lot of practicality as we're jumping in and talking about in more detail your cash flow cycles and how cash is king right now and what you can do about it in your small or medium-sized business. Of course, we're going to start with our weekly meditation. So if I could just get you, please, just lean back into your chair, close your eyes. We're going to start with some deep breathing. A big, deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. Feel free to make noise if that feels the most comfortable. In through the nose and out through the mouth. And as you let your breathing build into a natural rhythm, I encourage you to start feeling the body that your breath is powering. Maybe start with your head, your face. Can you feel any tension? Spread down into your neck. Can you feel your neck holding, supporting your head? Is it loose? Is it strong? Is it tense or sore? And as you breathe in, focus on breathing in new energy and breathing out any of that stiffness that might be in your body. Feel your shoulders, your upper back. Is that holding any of the tension or uncertainty that's going on for you or is that loose? How are your arms? your elbows, your wrists, your fingers, just breathing in that energy, breathing out any stiffness that you might be experiencing. Breathe into your lower back. This is often an area where we hold tension and uncertainty, even emotional. But it's not just the physical pressure that can sometimes put weight, pain and discomfort onto our lower back. So breathing in and breathing out releasing some of that tension, some of that uncertainty. And down into your legs, your quads, your glutes, your bum, sitting on the chair, having the weight taken for it and yet sometimes still holding some of the weight. As you move through the body, can you feel those different areas that maybe you weren't previously aware of? 
as we continue down through your knees, feel your ankles, feel your feet. Maybe they're on the ground, maybe they're up, feeling how they support you and whether they need some loosening, some new energy to breathe through them. Our body, like our mind, like our business, is an incredible machine. And does an incredible job sometimes of hiding from us the tension, the weight, the pain that we might be experiencing. Taking the time to be mindful, to consciously focus on each of those areas of your body, to see what they need, how they may need some loosening, some care and attention. We're going to take two more breaths before we end the meditation. So a big, deep breath in through the nose of that new energy. And then from the soles of your feet up through your legs, your buttocks, your body, your chest, your neck, your head, breathing that out, all of that tension, all of that uncertainty. And then one final breath to just bring us back to the present, to being mindful of our conversation. In through the nose and on your final exhale, you push the palms of your hands together, open your eyes and rejoin the conversation. These meditations all exist on Spotify and on YouTube. If you ever just need the meditation, feel free to jump on and experience that. And with that focus, hopefully devoid or at least with less the tension, the weight sitting on us. Let's get into your business, the priorities for the coming week. We start, of course, with a check-in of the economic snapshot. So here's the economic snapshot for this week. This is the week when COVID-19 overtook heart disease to become the single highest cause of death in the United States. I'm reminded of something I read more than a month ago, a comment out of Italy. Somebody said at first we knew, everybody knew someone who had lost their job and now everybody knows somebody who's died. And if we look at some of those active case changes, the fact that in the UK, the US and globally, the number of people who actively have COVID-19 novel coronavirus continues to climb at large numbers, 20, 30%. The health crisis continues and continues without a clear idea of when exactly that might end. I am, of course, continue to be heartened by the Australian figures, which is where I live, by a little bit of luck being an island nation, by being a little bit further back and being able to respond sooner than some of the other countries. We do certainly seem to have peaked both new cases and inactive cases. Uh, and a 42% decline in active cases this week is a third consecutive week where those numbers have declined. Very briefly on the other indicators, the stock markets were flat again this week. The UK finally released their February unemployment data, which was up uh, by 1%. Uh, that's fairly out of date in the coronavirus world. Uh, but it is, of course, worth remembering 
uh, across the unemployment and the GDP growth figures where we have no new updates this week. Uh, now, the, the UK had a negative quarter of GDP growth in the middle of last year. Their December quarter was flat, neither grew nor shrank. And if a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, then uh, those UK figures and similar weakening across the US, Australia and many other developed countries is a reminder that while the pandemic may have been somewhat unexpected and unpredictable in terms of its exact timing, the recession was less so. We were overdue in a cyclical sense for a recession and many of the economic fundamentals were softening well in advance of COVID-19 pushing it over the edge. That's important to remember because that also points to one, how we need to transform our businesses because those economic fundamentals were weak. And two, that even if we were miraculously able to rid the world of COVID-19 this week, there would still be some of the economic fundamentals in business and in our communities that would need transformation, that would need changing. Now, one question I received during this week, and it's certainly something that a lot of media attention is given to, is how much can we actually rely on some of those coronavirus numbers? Uh, China, way back in January, and certainly again more recently, has been accused of fudging the numbers or outright lying. Of course, similar conversations are going on in the UK, where there are some estimates that 40% more people may have died than the official record because of how it's defined. Uh, the US, where there's certainly great political pressure in the White House to minimise the seeming effect of what's going on. And those things aren't limited. I mean, even in Australia, where the numbers are much rosier, the reality is that our government has changed the definition of an active COVID-19 case 12 times since February. So are those coronavirus numbers a little bit of horseshit? Absolutely. Absolutely, they are. But there's two things we need to remember. One is... Uh, you know, in what way are they horseshit? And two, does that make them any different to all of the other indicators that we might be looking at? There's a, a great joke in economics about a, a man who loses his keys and is drunkenly searching for them underneath the street lamp. And a police officer walks past and asks him what he's down there doing. The man says, oh, I, I've lost my keys somewhere and I'm searching for them. The police officer says, oh, are you sure that you dropped them underneath the lamppost? The man says, no, 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 I, I dropped them in the bushes, but there's much more light over here. Often when it comes to economic indicators, we measure what we can see, where the light actually is, even though the actual information that is most relevant might be hiding in the bushes. Uh, in your business, you've got the opportunity to move that lamp, to go and have a look in the bushes. Uh, in the economy in general, we often need to take the data that we have and work with it. My question then is not, are these numbers a bit of horseshit? Because of course they are. My question is, are they consistently incorrect in the same direction? Uh, Nate Silver in his book, The Signal and the Noise, talks about the difference between accuracy and precision. What we look for in any kind of measurements is a combination of both. The numbers are both accurate, they're very, very uh, aligned and precise. Uh, uh, accurate, they're aligned on the bullseye, for example, and precise. They're very, very close together. It's possible to be one or the other. Uh, what I certainly hope for in these indicators is a degree of precision. They're all clumped together in the same 
incorrect area of the bullseye. They may not be fully accurate, but if they're inaccurate in the same direction every week, then we can at least still be using those trend lines. And yes, coronavirus numbers are somewhat unreliable. At least we have some consistency as we measure those trends week to week. The markets, we think about the stock markets, so much noise. They were very flat again this week. Uh, you know, in some ways, all of the uncertainty at the start of the pandemic saw those drops of 20, 25, 30%. Uh, the uncertainty now means that many of them are, are treading water. But if anybody ever says to you that the stock market has moved in that direction because, remember that because is the most horseshit word in financial journalism, that there's so much noise going on there that they're an indicator and an idea, uh, but really a crude measurement at best. Uh, unemployment numbers are ridiculous in terms of measuring what we often feel that they are measuring. Often, particularly in the countries that we report every week, the UK, the US and Australia, often unemployment numbers only shows those people who are actively looking for new jobs. The government policy in all three of those countries has been to make it hard for people to go on welfare, to get state aid, because if it's too hard to get unemployment, well, one, the government saves money. And two, if it's hard to get it's hard to get those unemployment benefits, you're not even going to register. And if you don't register, you don't show up on these numbers. And so they can tout record low unemployment rates, as many have been doing over the last five years, as unemployment in some of these countries has gone to three, four percent, what in the past we used to call full employment. But the reality is what they're not counting is the people who are unemployed but aren't registered or have given up on even being able to find a job. And of course, those people who are underemployed, the casualization and the Uberization, the gig economy that's going on for many uh, unskilled workers uh, around the world, and particularly in some of those Western democracies at the moment, means that the unemployment numbers cannot accurately be compared to perhaps the situation 20 years ago, certainly 30, 40, 50 years ago. The actual number of unemployed and underemployed people, according to some estimates, may be three times higher than what we see in those official figures. And that was before the recession. Remember, those unemployment figures that sit around 4 and 5% don't fully encapsulate the end of March and what's happened in April. 22, uh, sorry, as of today, 26 million Americans out of work in the last five weeks. And those are the ones who have applied for some kind of jobless claim. There are countless millions more who have not been able to or who are sitting on the edge and haven't done so. Every recession is different. So one of the interesting things that we're going to need to be cautious of or mindful of going through the coronavirus recession is to what extent does that casualization, the gig economy, have an impact on salaries, on savings, and on the recovery potential for a lot of employees, will it mean that it's easier for them to go and find work? If they're in an at-will work situation where they can be let go, does that mean employers will be faster to hire people coming out of this? Does the gig economy mean it's going to be easier for people to find some income to uh, get more confidence in their savings and their spendings? Or does the fact that there's less job security and the speed with which many people have lost their jobs mean that people will be increasingly cautious and increasingly unable to get a secure job that will give them the confidence they need to keep spending 
Uh, and that spending, of course, is what drives GDP. The spending is what drives the economy and the markets. I don't have an answer on that yet. I continue to research and explore some of the lead indicators that are going to tell us when we're really reaching that execution point in terms of when your business can execute its next strategy because the economy is picking up. And GDP, the last point for this economic snapshot, uh, GDP is a lousy measure of success. Uh, in Australia, for example, it's largely propped up by immigration. So our growth is almost wholly dependent on new people moving to Australia. If we just focused on the people who were already here last year, well, that wouldn't be a measure of GDP. That would be a measure of things like productivity, where things have been flat for some time. And of course, GDP doesn't measure happiness. Would you rather be rich and miserable or okay, stable economically, but happy? Sadly, a lot of people would rather be rich and miserable. GDP, of course, doesn't measure all of those, but it is the official way that we track whether or not we are in a recession. So in other words, are the coronavirus figures horseshit? Absolutely. Are all of our financial metrics horseshit? Absolutely. Are we doing what we can to focus on some of them that will give us some signal so that we don't get lost in the noise of day-to-day -day media and so that we can use that information to make our own decisions within our lives and our business? Absolutely. Speaking of your business, here are the priorities for this week. And there's just one that I want you to focus on this week, and that is taking the time to understand the timing of the six cash flow cycles that are going on in your business. As we'll talk about later in this presentation, there are six different ways that your business is spending money in order to achieve a return. And in each of those, the money gets held up. The faster money can move through each of them, the sooner you turn it over and turn it into profit or at least revenue to keep your cash flow moving and your business afloat. Measure where each of those is at and then identify opportunities in each of those to possibly improve and speed up the flow of cash to improve your business. So let's talk about the six cash flow cycles and why that's so important. You may remember from our conversation last week about when will the coronavirus recession end, that increasingly small and medium-sized businesses are getting out of the respond phase, that immediate, usually around three months, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, where the recession first hits. We have to work out how we're going to deal with it. Where's rock bottom? How do we keep afloat? Do we need to drastically change things in a hurry? Once we get through those questions, we start to enter the planning phase. And this is where we plan for how to transform our business for the new reality that exists on the other side of the recession. The planning phase can last a brief period of time or a long period of time. It depends on how long the recession lasts, and that depends on what shape the recession is. So in a V-shaped recession, fast down, bounce, fast up, we generally only have uh, three to six months in the, the planning phase before we reach that execution point at the bottom. You've got to execute your plans in order to profit all the way up the new normal. In an L-shaped recession, which is what increasingly forecasters are predicting, you have on average about 12 or 18 months because it drops faster. We spend longer down the bottom. You've got to make sure that you hold your nerve through that period 
keep the business moving, keep that planning happening before the execution point that finally comes. So at the moment, it looks like that execution point won't be before July 2021. The good news is that does give you time for the strategic planning of the new normal, the transformation of the business into what you really want to create. Of course, it makes it even more critical in that respond and as we move into the planning phase to make sure that you are monitoring and continue to manage the cash and the cash flow in your business. As we know, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. So what are the six different cash flow cycles in your business? The first is the marketing cycle. So in most businesses, there is some kind of marketing that takes place, and that takes place before anything else can happen in terms of money coming into your business. The marketing cycle leads to the sales cycle. The sales cycle is that time it takes from an inquiry until you actually get a lead. Now, in businesses that carry some kind of inventory, maybe that's stock, maybe that's materials that you need to manufacture or to deliver your service, you can technically look at inventory management around things like the capacity of a professional services team, although it gets a little bit uh, tricky and, and nuanced and uh, possibly unnecessary in most small and medium-sized businesses. That inventory cash flow cycle is that period between buying stock and actually selling it. The selling of the stock or the delivery of your services is the delivery cycle. Once you have a customer, getting the delivery. Of course, once you've delivered the work, you have to bill it, you've got to get the invoice out, get the payment. And that payment cycle is the last of the six. So those are the six cash flow cycles in a business. Marketing, sales, inventory, delivery, billing, and payment. Incidentally, for those who were fans of my Blackboard Fridays web series or have done the one-on-one -on -one coaching work with me, you'll recognize the colors that we use there, the green for growth, the blue for revenue, and the red for your administration. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, uh, do go through some of the previous videos to have a look at how that tool, the color coding, can really help you to understand the workflow, the money flow, and your own time management within your business. So let's go through each of those in detail. And this is the question I want you to be asking yourself this week. Go through each of these six and use either the data that you have available or the gut feel. If all you have is a gut feel, you're still better with a gut feel in the bushes than looking under the lamppost where you know those keys are not actually hidden. So for the marketing cycle, the question is how long does it take for a marketing initiative to create a lead? And so, for example, it might be 60 days. 60 days between you putting some ads on Facebook, between writing an article, between putting out a newsletter, for that to actually lead to somebody coming to you and saying, okay, I would like to talk about your services. Once they come to you, then we're in the sales cycle. The question there is how long does it take your team, yourself, your salespeople to turn a lead into a client? An example I've got here is 30 days. Maybe it takes a month, a couple of conversations perhaps, or some decision-making time on behalf of that new customer before they will actually make the decision to buy. Where relevant, the inventory cycle asks, how much stock do you carry and for how long? 
the time you want to put there, and I've got 45 days in this example, is the extreme. So if you carry stock for a maximum of 45 days, you know, if you were to run low today, you would put in an order for 45 days worth of stock. Then even though at the end of that, there'll be stock that does get sold very, very quickly, and tomorrow you'll sell some of that stock very, very quickly. We want to count the whole 45 days because that's the maximum time that your cash is tied up in all of that inventory. It slows down the flow of cash. One of the really fascinating uh, larger economic impacts of this recession is the impact that the pandemic has had on just-in-time manufacturing. So this was an initiative that came out of a lot of lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, certainly a lot of the production line and the work of the Japanese manufacturers to really make their businesses as efficient as possible. And the idea was the less time you needed to hold your inventory, then the faster you could turn over your money, the more profit it is that you would make. So if you're going to sell something to a customer tomorrow, you really didn't need it 45 days ago. You just need it to arrive today or even in the morning on your way. You'd need it just in time. Now, the challenge that we're facing, because China was the first country hit and so much manufacturing globally depends on Chinese parts, that that suddenly had a great big lag that impacted supply chains around the world. And then also things like businesses having to close, having to work on limited hours or skeleton staff in order to protect the health of their customers and their staff meant that it became much harder for you to guarantee that that stock you normally got in 24 hours was actually going to arrive. I was talking to one CEO a couple of weeks ago. Now, the warehouse for one of the products that they install is just a 10-minute drive from them. But at the moment, it's taking an average of five days for what used to be a 24-hour turnaround because it goes to a distribution warehouse, the business that you know, is in the business of supplying those materials, has outsourced that distribution to make their business as efficient as possible. But because of the overwhelm that's on a lot of delivery systems right now and the under uh, ability of staff to, to be there and to work, that whole process has slowed down. So for this CEO, what used to be a, we're going to need some stock for next week, let's order a week at a time, has suddenly become, we need to be thinking two to four weeks ahead. So that's now money that he's spending today, which he's not going to be able to get a return on for two to four weeks, where he used to get that much, much faster. And you can start to see that there's no right answer for some of things. You've got to make decisions as to what's best within your business. After the inventory cycle, if you skip that because you don't carry any kind of stock, you don't want to use the analogy for people resources, the next one is then the delivery cycle. So once purchased by a client or a customer, how long does it take you to deliver your product? Now, in a retail store, that's fairly immediate. Somebody comes in, they buy something off the shelf, and you deliver it immediately. Some uh, retail environments, it might be an online is an example of that, where there is a delivery time. Uh, and some, for customer bespoke work, it might take time to actually manufacture and create it and then to ship it before the customer can deliver it. And of course, in a professional services environment, it can take quite some time to deliver a project, to deliver a piece of work. And the example I've got there is 45 days. So once a customer says, yes, I want to buy it, it can still take your business 45 days to actually deliver it. And then once they've delivered it, 
But to go to the next, so the billing cycle, how long does it take you once delivered to actually send the invoice? The example I've got there is 15 days. Many small businesses that I know only run their billing cycle once or twice a month. It's certainly not something that you want to be doing every single day. And yet that means that for work that gets delivered the day after you send out your invoices, you may not actually bill them for another two weeks, half a month, 15 days. And of course, once invoiced, we get to the sixth and final of the cash flow cycles, which is the payment cycle. How long are your averaged debtor days? Example I've got here is 45 days, uh, which is not uncommon in many businesses that I work one-on-one -on -one with. When I first go in, we have a look. On average, it's taking 45 days for their clients to actually pay for the work that was delivered. It's only once that payment is received that that cash comes back into your business, hopefully with a profit, so there's more cash coming in than you have outlaid. And this is sometimes called the cash conversion cycle, CCC, because it does track that conversion of cash that you spend on marketing, on sales, on inventory, on delivery, on billing, and on getting those payments made. The conversion of that cash into cash coming in through the payment of the customers, hopefully with some profit margin, the surplus to what it is that it's cost you to deliver it. Now, if you look at that example, 60 days for marketing, 30 days for sales, 45 days for delivery, 15 days for the billing cycle, 45 days to payment. If we add all of those up, it's 195 days. And that's assuming there's no hold up on inventory. If your delivery gets pushed out by a week because you need some stock and it takes another week, that's going to go on top of that 195 days. So between spending a dollar on marketing, the start of that cycle, it takes more than six months for you to actually get that dollar back. And when I go into a business, and even yourself, if you've ever looked at cash flow, and if you've watched my Blackboard Friday's five-minute video on the impact of debtors on cash flow, you might ask yourself, well, okay, cash is king right now. Uh, you know, I know I have a bit of a debtor issue. That's blown out. So instead of looking at the whole cycle, most small and medium-sized business owners, in my experience, jump straight to the debtors. And look, that's understandable. It's the last step in the process. It's the fastest step where making a difference will put cash in. And it's also, in a sense, the most profitable use of your time. It's work that's already been sold and delivered. You don't need to do any more work to access that money. You just need to get paid. And if you can improve the payment cycle, say from 45 days to 30 days, then that is going to improve the business. But once we understand the whole cash conversion cycle, we sort of realize that going from 45 days to 30 days might feel like a big win in the payment cycle, but it still means that the overall cycle is 180 days. I mean, woohoo, we're under six months, but that's not really the outcome that we ideally want to be looking for. And so that's why this is your task this week to really make sure that your business is ready to start looking longer term, to start that strategic planning. You've got to fill in those boxes. And to help with that, we're going to run through some case studies to end this presentation. Your task this week, fill in each of those boxes. Get accurate data if you can. Use your gut feel if you can't. For those listening on the podcast, uh, and for those who maybe have the, the video up in another tab right now, I'll run through those six again so that you can uh, remember them or write them down. How long's your marketing cycle? From spending money on a marketing initiative to receiving a lead, how long does that take? Your sales cycle from 
that lead coming in to actually closing the client. How many days? The inventory cycle. How much stock do you carry? Your delivery cycle from that client making a decision to work with you to actually delivering the work. How long does that take? Your billing cycle. How long does it take you once the work is completed to actually get the invoice or the bill out the door? And then the payment cycle. How long does it actually take for payment to be made? And once you've got an idea of the days, the numbers on each of those, ask yourself, which ones hurt the most? Looking at the numbers or just on your gut feel, which ones are most impacting your business? And what can you do and your team do to improve those numbers? Let's look at some examples. So I've got a number of different examples here, which are partly based on some of the more active members of our Facebook group. So I've tried to make these as relevant to all of you as possible. Uh, you probably won't recognize yourself uh, some of these uh, aggregates of many clients in that industry that I've worked with one-on-one -on -one over the years. Uh, however, you may resemble some of the comments, absolutely. I'm gonna start with you know, potentially a, a quite nice business model in terms of the cash conversion cycle. This is a COD, cash on delivery, trade business. We go through the numbers for this business. The marketing cycle is 30 days. So the example I'm using here is somebody that does some uh, annual work. And so when it's 30 days before that work is due, they send out a follow-up letter, email, they make the follow-up phone call, and they book it in. Uh, now that 30 days could actually be a lot less. If they were just using, say, Google AdWords, then that could be reduced to even zero, depending on how their budget works and how strict we want to be about some of these definitions. So if they were getting all of their work from Google, from people who were ready to buy immediately, then that market cycle might be a couple of days or none at all. Once the inquiry comes in, in this trade business, it takes them on average three days to uh, to actually convert that lead into a client. So some people buy immediately, uh, some people, you know, they delay, they want to think about it, they want to have a chat with their spouse. The delivery cycle is eight days. Now that would be quicker, uh, but we're booked up that far in advance. If you book with us today, we can't actually get out to you until the middle of next week. And that's a pretty good thing to be having in business. Uh, in this case, their inventory cycle is at 30 days. They hold 30 days worth of stock. That does tie up some of their cash, uh, but they always have enough stock on hand, so it's not delaying the delivery cycle. And in terms of the billing cycle and the payment cycle, those are both zero days because it's cash on delivery. Trades person goes out onto site, does the work, gets paid immediately. And as you can see, between the inquiry, so the start of the sales cycle, to payment being made, it's just 11 days. And compare that to the 180, 195 that we were just talking about. And there's things here that they could do even better. Uh, I mean, some sales training might turn that three-day sales cycle into one or two. Uh, yes, their stock is being held up. There's some inventory or warehouse procedures they could do uh, to shift that perhaps to 15 days. Uh, they could do more decision point marketing like Google AdWords. Uh, you know, I mean, the inventory cycle extreme would be to just buy what they need at Bunnings or at a, a warehouse, Home Depot, on their way to the actual client. And that's when the conversation, if you're listening to that, you might start to push back because you can see how it breaks down. It's absolutely possible for us to reduce 
some of these days enormously. If we just did AdWords, if we only took bookings that were immediate, if we bought stock on our way to the job, if we had so many guys, gals out on the tools that we could be there in 24 hours, I mean, we could reduce that cash cycle from 11 days, which is still pretty good, down to one or two at a maximum. But the profit margins on those jobs are going to be pretty dire. You suddenly got a whole lot of excess capacity in your tradespeople because they're available, sitting around on their hands, twiddling their thumbs, perhaps, probably not both on their hands or they're twiddling their thumbs. Uh, you know, buying stock at Home Depot is going to be more expensive than getting it in from your supplier. Uh, and so even though that ties up cash, it does improve your profit margins. And that's a balance you want to keep making. Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is king. All three of those are connected and you can't focus on cash at the expense of the others or you'll have money coming in but not actually be profitable, not actually be able to cover all of those expenses ongoing. Let's have a look at another industry example. This is a professional services firm. Uh, now the marketing cycle there, we've got 120 days. Uh, so this is using the example of a business that does a lot of events, whether online, live events, uh, in order to try and attract new people, new awareness into the business. And it can take them, on average, about four months between running that event and actually having the inquiry that falls out of it. Some people might only come to them a year or two years after that event. They've done a great job of planting a seed, but it doesn't rapidly turn into sales and opportunity. And maybe that's one of the reasons why so many professional services businesses, <coughs> accountants, don't actually spend a lot of money on marketing. They don't invest in that. It's not just because they don't necessarily understand it. It's because from a cash flow cycle, they're not willing to take some of the risks in order to put that marketing out there, knowing it can take some time in a cash flow cycle to be returned. ROI is great. Speed of ROI is something that you want to always factor in. But if it's a great marketing initiative, that brings in over time far more clients than it actually costs you, it's probably worth doing because one, it will help grow your business and two, that may be something your competitors are scared of. So when I look at 120 days, I go, that's a lot. I wanna know why that is and what decisions were made. Were they conscious decisions or were they not? Uh, and if they weren't conscious decisions with that information, would we make the same decision? The sales cycle in this firm is 45 days. Now that reflects at least two meetings and some of the uncertainty that goes on for somebody to change their professional services provider. So they'll want to meet with you two or three times. Most of the time that's not a, can we come back tomorrow and have a second meeting? It's, look, let me think about it. Let's do something next month. So that sales cycle drags for 45 days. I put not applicable to the inventory cycle. As we've discussed, you know, there are ways to take inventory as a concept and apply it in fairly much every business. Uh, for these guys, it's not something that we worry about. The delivery cycle for them is 30 days, so it takes on average about a month to deliver the piece of work that a client might ask for. And once that work's been done, they're doing that whole we invoice twice a month kind of process, so it can take up to 15 days for that invoice to actually go out, and their debtors were at 45 days. If we add all of those up, that's 255 days from the marketing event and to cash. Uh, and if we do uh, the numbers on that, so the dollar spent in marketing, and in, in a, an accounting business, a lot of professional services businesses, they often think about a you know, three-time return, 
uh, on a lot of their expenses. Um, so you spend that marketing dollar today, it, it could produce three times, you know, all that money that comes out at the end of the payment cycle. But because it's taking so long, your average turnover is only 1.4 times per annum. So the flow of money through the business is quite slow. And a couple of things that I would be recommending to that business, assuming that marketing is actually working and they have some other marketing strategies that are faster, I'd be looking absolutely at some sales training. How do we get the sales cycle down from 45 days to something much faster? Uh, the billing cycle is also something that I think could be brought down, possibly in line with the delivery. Better whip meetings, work in progress, workflow, uh, having some of the software that exists at the moment to get the invoices out when the work is delivered instead of that being handled separately as a separate function. Uh, all of those things could bring those days down. Uh, and a better debtors process, the managing overdue invoices uh, and for really reining that in would absolutely bring the 45 days down. And if we have a look at what some of those changes would be if we made that. So if we were able to, to shift the sales cycle from 45 days to 15 days, we've halved the delivery cycle, we've lopped a lot off the billing cycle and we've implemented the debtors process. So that's not going to happen overnight, but the cash turnover, that flow, and therefore the profitability of the business has gone from 1.4 times per annum to twice. So now they're turning over their cash twice as often and with you know better marketing, different marketing initiatives working with you know, perhaps a marketing specialist who specialises in accountants, whatever their industry might be, and find some way so that on average, that comes right down. Even if you're still doing the events, the 120 days, on average, it's coming right down. Then suddenly we're turning over the cash three times per annum. And so it's not just the profitability of the job. You can only do 1.4 jobs per year. You're going to make less money than if you can do three jobs per year with the same resources. Next example is a holiday resort. A holiday resort will often have a long marketing cycle and a long, potentially very long inventory cycle. Uh, the marketing cycle is, uh, and I've got 365 days up there in this example, you're really getting people who've finished a holiday and are starting to think about where do we go next year and getting in front of them. So we can take you a year before the marketing initiative that you've done actually turns into uh, an inquiry. Um, that sales cycle can be, I've got 45 days up there as the example, uh, because people want to get some information. Uh, you know, maybe they're looking at your website or they've sent through an inquiry, but they've got to discuss it. They've got to manage budgets. They may be piecing together a bit of an itinerary if they're going to multiple locations. Uh, and all of those things take time. Uh, the inventory cycle, I mean, in a sense, you're not selling a widget, you're not selling stock, you could treat that as non-applicable. Uh, once you break it down in a, a resort, then you find different types of inventory, different stock, and that's going to range from two days. You might have two days worth of clean sheets. You've got to keep turning over. Uh, 20 years could be how long it takes you to actually pay off the building or the development, the renovations of that resort. So the stock you've got, the rooms, the money you spend on building those could take 20 years to pay off. That's money that's tied up for that time frame, which is why, of course, even in business, we tend to prefer debt a little bit more than we might in our personal life because of the impact it has on business cash flow, even though it comes with an expense and uh, an impact on profitability. The delivery cycle, seven days, and on average, a guest might be there for seven days. Uh, the billing cycle, most guests pay 
uh, at the end, or they get the bill at the end. And you'll actually see in this example, I've got two payment cycles. There's the payment cycle at the end of the stay, which is at zero days. And then there's another payment cycle I've brought forward and attached to the sales cycle. So if you've booked a holiday recently, you'll know that increasingly accommodation providers are taking either a deposit or in some cases full payment at the point of sale when you make the booking as opposed to when you actually stay. There are still some that are on the more traditional model of not taking your money until you have stayed and, and a lot that are still offering free cancellation. Uh, I love to travel. Uh, many of my regular fans, listeners, viewers will know that uh, you know, my beautiful wife and I took our, our calm and happy daughter to 19 different countries in her first year, uh, a little bit less this year in her second year. Uh, it still surprises me, to be honest, how many hotels do offer that free cancellation up until the last minute and you don't have to pay until checkout. Uh, if I was working with more of these, I would absolutely be taking more of a deposit at least upfront to help cover some of the costs. It's going to be very interesting, of course, to see how these businesses transform because so many of them have been absolutely smashed by the pandemic and are ongoing by the recession. The last of the cash flow cycle examples that I'm going to use is a SaaS business, software as a service. So this is things like uh, you know, buying that uh, subscription, often subscription software, which you can now do with almost everything, Adobe, Microsoft, uh, products that you used to have to spend a lot of money on, you now just pay a small monthly fee. Uh, it could still be a one-off fee, although that business model is absolutely declining for a lot of software providers because they like the ongoing revenue and they like being able to give you ongoing updates. Uh, if you break it down, this is a little bit of a best case scenario, um, but in this situation, your marketing cycle for a SaaS business might be a couple of days. You know, if you're doing AdWords, you're tipping money in every couple of days, a couple of times a week, uh, and you're getting people at a point where they're ready to purchase. I need better email software. I need better uh, analytics. I bought one earlier this year uh, that helps export LinkedIn contacts uh, to build up my, my uh, marketing profile and my database. Um, you know, I went looking for a product. I'd bought that within the hour. Uh, and so depending on, you know, what they'd done to spend money on their marketing, that was a very, very quick marketing cycle to lead and then a very quick sales cycle. I put one day there for the sales cycle. You know, some people like to, to sleep on it. If you're selling into larger organisations, that's going to take longer. Uh, in some ways, the larger the organisation, the longer it's going to take because at an enterprise level, they absolutely have uh, not only different needs, but a very different risk profile, a risk appetite. Uh, I've put not applicable to the inventory cycle. The delivery cycle can be immediate because you're selling a digital product and because you're taking payment at the point of sale, you also have zero days billing cycle, and a zero day payment cycle. So that whole cycle where we were looking at examples that were 195 plus days and the SaaS business model can get that down to one, two or three days. And that is kind of why Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, so many of these online providers are taking over the world. It's not just that they have a product that is massively profitable. It's massively scalable, so they can sell it at an enormous net uh, gross profit margin, uh, and then they can keep their overheads where they want them in terms of the fixed cost for the, for the big net profit. Uh, but also in terms of cash conversion, they can be taking that problem, taking the money that's coming back into the business and putting it back into the cycle and turning it over 
in, where we were looking at an accounting business that turned it over 1.4 times per year. A SaaS business could be turning it over 140 times per year. And if it's profitable each and every time they do it, the rapid growth that they're going to achieve in terms of top line revenue numbers is going to be enormous. Now, of course, I said that's a bit of a best case scenario. There are two cash flow cycles that I haven't included here for conversation that most impact a SaaS business, but do impact others. Uh, and those are the R&D slash product cycle and the market development cycle, going in and developing a new market. Now, those can be years long. To develop the product that you can then sell through a SaaS method can take you years. Uh, and there are analogies. If you think about construction, you're building an apartment block. It's going to take you one to two years, perhaps even more for larger projects, to actually build the product before you can really get into the sales and the delivery cycle. And of course, that's an industry that works a lot of pre-sales, bank loans and those things to just manage the cash flow from an asset that they can't be turning over multiple times, where they can't build the first floor and sell all of those before they build the second. Uh, and right now, I mean, have a chat to medical supplies. How many businesses have pivoted right now to providing more medical supplies, ramping up their medical supplies? That's a new product initiative or it's new market development. And even if they've got the capacity within their delivery team to do it, cash has to go in, has to be spent, has to be invested in product development, in market development that takes time to flow through. Of course, you're hoping that those are largely a one-off investment uh, that then funds that business uh, and where you can then pivot, refine, improve, modify small innovations with your existing market to grow your business so you don't have to go through that entire process over again. Uh, but that the time involved is one of the reasons why at a certain point in their business life cycle, the Appa Amagoo book type businesses shift from a lot of internal development to acquisition. Because when you acquire another business, you cut out all of that lead time in R&D. You're buying something that's ready or almost ready to go to market. And even though it might cost you more money, you haven't had that money tied up and you haven't bet on any losers because you're buying the businesses or the teams that you want and you know are actually going to succeed. So there you have it, your actions this week, delivery cycle, sales cycle, inventory cycle, delivery cycle, billing cycle, payment cycle, how many days in your business and which of those do you need to focus on to accelerate the cash flow through your business and make sure that you maintain the cash that right now continues to be king. As always, join the Facebook group, subscribe on YouTube or Spotify. Please continue to leave reviews, likes, to be sharing these. That's much appreciated by me, and it just means we've got more people to be having the conversation with. And you can, of course, join the mailing list as well at jacobaldridge.com. I'll see you all next Friday.